Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part one of a discussion of Trends and Tension in Retail Design with Andrew McQuilkin and Declan McCormick, both of BHDP. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design-related topics. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's get started. So um, I'm going to start with you, Andrew. How long have you worked in the retail sphere? I've been working in the retail sphere for years. <laughs> Is that the same as don't ask me my age? <laughs> so I actually started doing retail um, when I was 16 years old. Really? My father was in the business, retail architect. Used to work for Raymond Lowy doing department stores. So I was doing retail documents and elevations starting at 16. Really? Making some cash so off the books. So about 10 years now, right? It's because you're yeah. in your 20s, young, mm -hmm. young man. So over 30 years. <laughs> Fair enough. So Declan, same question to you. Yes, uh, Brian. So for me, it's um, 25 years and counting. Really? And it's interesting, when I arrived in the US back in 1994, uh -huh. um, from a different architectural world, not retail, this was my first foray into retail back then. and. It was a big eye opener and never looked back since. So how did you get to retail? For, what were you doing before? If you know a commercial, um, commercial and um, banking. Oh, okay. And, but never touched retail in my 10 years in London before I came over here. So then how'd you wind up in retail when you came here? First uh, first place I went to to say hi for a job, I got the job there and then it's, <laughs> it all happened. Yeah, it and is, then you fell in love. Right? It was yes. the accent. It was the accent? Yeah, yeah. It, it was different back then for sure, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well then, so you guys both have a pretty wide breadth of experience. A lot has changed in that 25 to 30 years mm -hmm. experience. So you were born into it, Andrew. Yes. And then Declan, it found you through a transition. But then um, have, had you ever, Andrew, considered doing anything else? Uh, yeah, I wanted to be the next Autobahn. Really? Yeah. You wanted to be a road? An ornithologist. Oh, who birds. that kind of autobahn. Autobahn, not Autobahn. Um, no, here's here's the interesting thing. You talk about the the change, um, you know. Back in the day, you know, most of retail when I started was was department store work, and that's where the glamorous work was back in the '80s. Right. Um, and when you got a project, when they you awarded a project, from the time you started to start planning and programming that project, that department store, the time it was built, it was two and a half years. Wow, that's a long deliverable right there. So now you're looking at the speed to market. I mean, when all these companies started going public, they've got to make results happen in the year that they, they allocated the revenue. So we'll turn around and we'll get a project that's assigned to us, say, in February, and they want it open before Christmas. This happens on the renovation work. For a new ground up, they want it in 16 months. So speed to market has been you know, a driver for a lot of retail. Uh, and for a lot of retail design firms trying to, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, if you could do it faster than everybody else, as they started to have those tensions, right, of what they're trying to deliver, um, you were the firm that was getting the work. Because you could, you could design and be more creative in a shorter amount of time. 
Now that's already built, baked into the system. So what did that do? What was the impact on the creative process? You know, well, imagine that you had the ability to, you know, basically study the customer and walk around the store if it was a renovation for maybe a month, two months. You now have a day to make that happen. So think about that. You need a lot more information coming from other data sources to tell you about who this customer is and what it's about. And now you have to use that one day just to validate what they told you. So you're going back with not preconceived notions, but educated information that came from? From outside sources, from data collection, from third parties um, that they've paid a lot of money for and you've got to absorb it. They're not doing a lot of the stuff internally that's coming from their own information or giving you the time to go discover it yourself. You know, imagine an architect having to design an amazing building on the side of a building and giving a day to walk the site. <laughs> right. And then said, you know, give me a set of drawings in four weeks. And then Andrew, with that, then I think we've seen a change too. In the past, you know, maybe you'd, you'd explore multiple different concepts and they could be at total opposite ends of the spectrum. But today, you know, I think we do a much more focused effort to really get a, a concept defined closer or tighter before we put pen to paper. And so we are using leveraging data that we get from our clients. We're leveraging our, not, our knowledge of the, of the shopper, of trends, and we're boiling all of that down to a more focused um, concept exploration. I'm not saying that we don't, you know, de develop concepts and, and, and show different options, but I think we, we are trying to narrow this thing down faster than before right. to get us there sooner. I think that's the advantage of the BHTP design process too. The ability to, to plug that methodology into the client's own internal processes and be able to give them the efficiency and the, and the time management they need to deliver on, on their goals and keep their shareholders and management happy. So the fact that we have a design process that allows us to really gather that information quickly, test those ideas, and in cases of, of you know, looking at concepts, it's failed quickly, right? right. So we can, get, we can get to the better answer as, quick, you know, as fast as we can to give them a solution that we can start to implement. I still think we have to be pretty heavy up front in terms of understanding what's going on. Um, and then spend a lot of time, you know, in that in that phases that we do discovering, you know, more information, right. so we can challenge the question. But once we get to a certain point, we just got to go. Once we've got the big idea. So where does the um, the information come? So you're saying you have a truncated timetable to get the data. Is the data already been processed, and they have some idea what they're coming with? Um, and then you just react to that. Like, how does this happen? Um, because the, I'll tell you, the width and breadth of my retail experience comes from the movie Mannequin. Literally, that's all I know. Um, <laughs> well, now it's that's more, not, but now it's more like Minority Report. Ah, interesting. So that's uh, a good. When we work with Gallo, um, Ian J. Gallo. Okay. Um, they're able to deliver through their shopping marketing group an extensive profile of maybe five or six consumer types, and their drivers are very extensive and there's a lot of really great inf information about how this customer shops, what they react to, um, really good profiles. When we dealt with Claire's recently for a new prototype, you know, their customer information about these, you know, nine to 15 year old girls uh, was not up to date. So the way that we got to the information fast is we did a brainstorming session with the nieces and daughters of the people here at BHTP. That information to Claire's was just as, if not more relevant than the information they got through third parties. So when we presented their designs and talked about these young ladies and what they liked and didn't like, that helped validate the decisions that we made with them and what we should be doing for the new design that's, that's about to roll out. 
So were, did they ask you to do that for Claire's? To, no, it's part just... of it's part of our process. We know we need that consumer information or that shopper information to do our job well. So one of the things you have to do through that process is identify gaps in information mm -hmm. quickly and then see how we can feed into it. Yeah, and, and help the client. Whether we bring a third party in or we have the capability, you know, from some of our tools to get there quickly, I think that's a part of a big piece of what we need to do. And to follow yeah. that, Andrew, I think, Brian, you know, not every client has the same level of, of experience as, as each other. So, you know, we, we engage with a new client, a new retail client. Um, and the first thing we do is get behind the curtains and understand what information they have on, on the consumer, the shopper, on their, on their staff, on their, on their needs, on what their financial goals are, what their sales goals are, what their long-term plan is. So, you know, we, we take all of that information and then we, we begin to really evaluate that and analyze that. And then to your point, we do fish for the gaps. Um, and if we find gaps, then we go back upstream again, um, using a fishing analogy. I'm here with again. you. That's I'm with you. Good. I like yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> go back upstream and see, can we unearth the reason for those gaps? And then we can help them to, to populate those gaps. Because the more information that we can validate and be ready to put pen to paper, obviously the, the more streamlined process will be. Um, but it just depends on the retailer. Not a, they're not all equal. Sure. Um, Andrew had mentioned earlier about building a brand new building. The old process was, you know, the, the time to delivery now is pretty short. How many retailers are looking for new stores? Because I've read a lot about the impact on brick and mortar stores. What, where do you guys want to go with that? I see Declan smiling. Couldn't wait for you to answer, answer yeah. that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll interject a little bit here in the beginning, but the, um, they've turned the phrase several years ago, retail apocalypse. I first heard that phrase actually um, in, the last, in, the, in the last great recession that right. we had. And now they made it seem last year like it was all new again. Well, no, they've already coined it. If it's the retail apocalypse, why did over 5,000 stores net open then closed in 2018 in the U.S.? And that's for store chains that are 50 or more. So there is no retail apocalypse. Stores are opening. They're just opening up in a different way, in a different format. Yes, there are a lot of store clo closing, but there's, there's 5,000 stores more opening. <laughs> and then the other part of the, of the puzzle, Brian, um, is that, you know, like Andrew and I have seen 25 plus years of retail evolution here and there definitely are generational there are there are times when when things have have stopped and started trends have started we've seen a new generation of millennials that are changing the shopping environment completely but um i think in, in you know the biggest challenge has been that there's an abundance of of square footage out there for many years 10 15 years ago retailers were building hundreds of stores per years right. per year um Malls were be, were being built in suburbia, left, right, and center. So we're I think we're feeling the pain of that oversaturation from fifteen plus years back, and that isn't a bad thing because we all you know know that and accept that there is a saturation out there. The big retailers out there will um, you can see you know Macy's, J C Penney, all of them those guys they're actually divesting some of their square footage because they have to they don't need it first of all right um so that's that's changed the dynamic somehow but then um so we're seeing stores closing but they're they, they don't call them closing I, I think they call them or downsizing they use the word right sizing which makes a lot of sense they are businesses after all sure but the exciting part for us that we're seeing too is the emergence of some of these online pure e-tail brands before that are coming into the market and they're doing the opposite thing they're actually opening stores 
and they've created a whole new vehicle or avenue for shoppers today. And what they're doing is they're bridging the gap between traditional physical brick and mortar stores and pure e-commerce. And people like Bonobos, Warby Parker, Indochino, to name a few, they're actually opening quite a few stores per year now. And these stores are more like guide shops or test shops. You don't actually get your physical merchandise there, but you can try on product, you can check size and so on. And then you can you can complete your purchase online on your phone or in the store if you want. But it's, so they've created a whole new dynamic that's really now bridging the gap between total omnichannel and total brick and mortar. Very exciting. Shoppers today have so many real um, different um, means to, to get the, the merchandise they want. Uh, they have so many options. Right. And they've, and so the, the challenge for physical retail today is how do I, how do I make or help my, my shopper consumer make the choice to come to my store versus all of the other parallel retailers in the category and versus going to the pure online source, which you can do in, in a click of a, of a button. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to add to that, you know, back in the day when I started, um, you kind of look at the tension between the the shopper and the retailer. And you try to figure out, you know, we kind of look down and figure out who owned what. Right. Right. So the, the shopper, you know, they owned their wants and needs. Right. The retailer owned a lot. You know, one of the things that they owned um, was location. And back in the 50s, when consumers moved out to the suburbs, the retailers lost location. So, you know, they went out to the suburbs. Lord & Taylor in Manhasset opened the first suburban department store, right? So they rent to the customer. So they got back their control. They owned the brands, you know, what they sold, what price they sold it for, the value we're going to get, the services they were going to offer. Now what's happening is because of the omni-channel world or online where, you know, I could be riding my lawnmower, stop my lawnmower, and I can order something on my phone while riding my lawnmower. So location is no longer in the control of the retailer. What decides who has control now is the word of choice. So it's the, it's the shopper now who ultimately has the control because of all the choices. I don't, I don't have to necessarily drive to my mall, you know, 10 miles away to go shop. You know, I can shop again sitting on my lawnmower and I can shop the entire world and it can be delivered to my doorstep. So that's what retailers are competing against. The fact that they've been over mauled for over 20 something years, you know, over stored. That online, even though it's not really the giant piece of the retail industry right now, put enough tension and challenges against the retailer to be able to then adapt. And so really you're adapting to be able to give the shopper choice. And those who can give them choice through the omni-channel aspect that Declan's talking about can have a certain level of control back. Very interesting. Yeah, Declan. And, and, and I, to add to that, here's a, a funny, uh, interesting um, factoid, I guess, that if you look at where all of these um, malls were built in suburbia 20 years ago, and again, there was a saturation of them there, and you look at today, the, 20, the shopper 20 years ago was living and working in suburbia. The shopper of today, millennials, um, they're starting to move downtown into the urban environment. Fewer of them have cars. They don't rely on cars like, like, like I did when I was younger. So they're not, they're not as um, mobile as, as I was, um, and therefore they're not as likely to go shopping in, in suburbia. They wanna be 
they want to be excited. Um, they want to be enthralled in, in a more urban environment. Um, and they're, they also have different shopping style and habits. They're much more focused. They're very savvy shoppers that do a lot of line, online research before they go to stores, but they're going to you know, exact areas in stores because they know exactly what they want. They're very, again, they're very value conscious, but they're very brand savvy as well. Well, one of, one of the trends that came out of that is a lot of big box retailers started to develop small for small store concepts. And the reason they want to do the small store concepts, they want to get into those downtowns. You know, you're not going to find 150,000 square feet of space to rent downtown that's going to fit your, your P&L, your profit and loss for what it's going to take to operate your store. So we've even worked with companies like Roach Brothers, a traditional supermarket out of Boston, and helped them develop several years ago a new small format concept that allows them to go um, not only to a city downtown, but even a suburban downtown. Um, and even, you know, we have a third option that kind of fits in between. So you look at companies like Target who invented City Target as a way to get downtown. It's a, Target's a very popular millennial brand. So again, just like I talked about in the 50s of, you know, stores moving out to the suburbs, now you've got retailers moving back into the city with formats that speak to where the consumers have gone. So when you talk about trends and a lot of things, there's usually, I, I like to compare it to a sine wave. There's a lot of oscillation, you know, up and down. Um, has technology sped up those peaks and valleys? Um, or have they, you know, narrowed them out any? Are they as extreme as they were? Are they more extreme? Um, is that a terrible analogy? <laughs> well, there, there is a rhythm to retail. Yeah. The, the big picture is the fact that every seven to eight years, consumer confidence in the economy nosedives. And we end up with recessions or great recessions. Every seven to eight years? Seven to seven years. Now, we could talk about the Fed if you want, um, but it's a cycle that we've seen over and over. I've been doing this over 30 years. There have been six downturns in the industry, the Great Recession being one of the biggest ones that we dealt with. Um, we kind of had a little slow one here, but things are picking back up in the economy. Consumer confidence is still pretty high for the past year or two. So it's going to maybe help even that out. But now we're attached globally to the global economy, which is sliding. Mm -hmm. So what impact is that going to have on consumer con confidence? So when I see the ups and downs, I think of it more about the bigger picture economics that are affecting retailers. Because even interest rates affect how much a retailer can borrow to be able to use that capital to, to improve their stores and spend money on improvements. So when you have low interest rates, you know, they're going to renovate, right? They're going to be able to say, I can spend this amount of money on a certain amount of return because if even I have a five or six percent return on a space, you know, I'm not paying an interest rate at seven or eight percent. I'm paying right. it at, you know, one or less in the past couple of years. So that's a big deal. So, you know, you have to follow the interest rates with the Fed to realize that's the incest, you know, the, the cycle that happens within retail. And what's really interesting too is that the way that overlaps with the 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 process that retailers have followed traditionally typically a retailer will recycle our stores every five to seven years they come up with a new prototype roll it out across the fleet let that then you know get an initial bump in sales get some more brand loyalty and then it levels off again and then five seven years later they'll do the same thing again so that there there is a direct correlation there but what we're trying to do here um, at BHDP, we're trying to, and, and you, if you visualize that as more like a stair step, okay, the, the, in these five to seven year periods, where you know, once the retailer does a new design and rolls it out, there's going to be a natural bump, um, and but after a while that bump will will taper off, 
And in fact, if they extend the, the, that design towards a back end of seven years, they could actually start to lose some brand loyalty and equity and, 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 and customers. So well, again, it, it was based on consumer data and business data to develop a prototype that matched where they were about to head. And the longer you go, the more the consumer is going to change. Imagine where how consumers and shoppers were seven years ago. Right. Compared to now, if a store is designed to work for five to seven years, once you get past that, the consumers significantly change. To your point about the rhythm, the consumers are changing faster. And so you need to have more information quicker to stay up to speed. So, I mean, finish your whole thing about the stair step, though, what we're and, trying to get to. And, and to your point, five to seven years in retail is like, is like dog years. It, things move quickly. And it isn't like any other industry out there. And it's, um, but yeah, it typically has been five to seven years. And if you visualize a stair step, what we're trying to do is we're trying to avoid those those um, sudden bumps um, and and then stalls. We're trying to, if you can imagine that you join all these points together in more of a, a gentle curve than it is a stair step. And we- well, well, imagine if you can continually optimize the experience and the sales within a space. So that's kind of what we've been working towards from a strategy standpoint is how do you help a retailer not just design a store and walk away, but stay fully engaged in a store that was either renovated or brand new and continue to help them optimize you know, the, the experience for the shopper by providing more data and information to them and more insights about the planning design changes they could make. So, okay, I want to circle back to something because it made me think of that when you guys were talking. You, uh, so experience is key, and I want to talk about customer ex or consumer experience. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions that I had in the back of my mind while you guys were talking, um, we started this chain of thought on brick-and-mortar stores, and there was some belief that with the coming of Amazon, it was going to destroy the brick-and-mortar sales thing. And then when Sears filed for chapter 11, then they're like, this is the beginning of the end. You were talking about the retail apocalypse. Um, but you're saying there's this opposite effect where people are just getting smaller and creating different, and then people from the internet are coming into and building stores. So um, how do you, as retail designers, react to that and, and create something that, I mean, because you can't make something enduring when it's constantly changing. What is that doing to what you're doing and, and how do you react to it? There was a question in there somewhere. It's also, it's, it's evaluating the investment, you know? So if you're going to invest in, in a space and you weren't going to change it for seven to 10 years, you know, you could build the Taj Mahal, Yeah. right? It would, it would pay for itself over time. You could depreciate the investment, right? So there was a business case to made. Um, now that the consumer is moving so fast, we're trying to figure out ways through through graphics and signage and paint and materials. They can't necessarily put in that full investment. So what are the things you can do, one, to refresh your current space or create spaces that are actually, from a cost perspective, more efficient, but adapt and change so that every time the consumer comes back, there's a different experience. They can adapt to the occasion or the event or the season a lot more readily than just being a static space. It sounds like theater where you're constantly striking and building new sets. Or, well, think know, of it, yeah. yeah. Think of it as stage sets for, for merchandise. Uh -huh. And you know the actor is, is the shopper. And the use of the term brick and mortar is in itself is so, is so, is so definitively long-term mm -hmm. and that's permanent. permanent. We're trying to get away from that. We're trying to, to create an environment that's that is more adaptable and pliable. And we're not saying that we're going to, you know, the four walls are not set. But ideally, the store 
can respond to the changing shopper needs. And if we're tracking those changing shopper needs on a continual basis, not every five to seven years, then that informs us how we can make some adjustments that could be that could optimize the environment for the retailer and for the shopper too. Sure. So talk about um, customer experience then. What, what's the importance of refreshing? Uh, like, What's an example, I guess, would be a better question because I'm starting to understand the importance of it. You want people to keep coming in because that justifies the existence of having that physical space, right? So you create something that draws people in, but... Well, think, think of, so let's go, let's go back 50 years. Okay. Right. Um, Hop in the Wayback Machine. Where, <laughs> where, you know, you've got these, these flagship stores. Right. Right. There wasn't necessarily a lot of suburbia happening 50 years ago. Um, this flagship store represented who your brand was. Everybody, an employee who worked there sort of knew they represented the brand, but they didn't know what the word brand was, by the way. These are all buzzwords of today. Uh, your show window was this, this, you know, magazine cover of re represented who you were. And you could tell amazing stories that would draw people in to open up that cover and come into the store. So the show window was this, uh, this, this place with, through the visual merchandising team that really got people excited. You know, the next issue came out. Every month there was a new show window. I mean, just think of the holiday windows that still happen on, on Fifth Avenue. In Manhattan. In, yeah. in Manhattan. And people go out just to see that. But it was a way to introduce new products, new lines, new brands, new designers, to get people to say, oh, there's something new to go and see. And then when you got up to those floors within the store, there was the new stuff. It was readily and available. And what happens is the store manager was in tune with their customer, right? They walk the floor every day. They knew maybe what was hot based on the questions that the consumers were, were asking about what's new, what's next, or where do I find this? Are you going to order this? Or is this going to come in? <laughs> and what's happened in the past 50 years is the by going public with a lot of these companies, a lot of these private retailers, the store managers no longer really were the pulse of the company. Um, everything became centralized. So the store managers now in a lot of these stores that we've worked on, they're operators. They're not in tune with the customer. I don't even know if they really walk the floors anymore, huh. right? Walked on the floor, asked for the store manager. They're in some back room, right? Working an Excel sheet, right? Um, so because they've centralized everything, you're basically you know, hungry for information about the consumer and what they want. So that's why all these third parties come in. That's why they put beacons in store to wet path to travel because there's nobody there feeding information back up to the central to be able to push back to the stores. So we think we've actually got a way now to solve that, to help the retailer by giving them information that we can process, just like the store manager did, and maybe even give it to the store manager that allows them to realize where to keep adapting and adjusting the store to stay current, to keep the experience up. I think there's also a big piece of surprise and delight. You, know? you don't wanna be always predictable. If you're static, you're boring. But if you turn around and say, you know, every month you're just going to do that, yeah, people will anticipate that. Well, what's the extra special thing you can do, you know, that's going to make them have an emotional connection to say, I didn't expect that, or you know more about me. You know, this is where data can come in and personalize your experience when you when you come into the space, which is what the store manager used to do 50 years ago. Well, like the Amazon stores themselves, right? The, uh, Amazon, who was going to destroy the traditional stores started opening their own stores, but it's all data-driven. Um, so the Amazon, Amazon Go um, concept is all about, it, it integrates uh, a lot of technology in their stores, cameras, sensors, and so on. And 
really it, it's more transactional. It's it's tracking the the actual the physical transaction that happens when the customer lifts the product from the shelf or puts it back down again, and then they fill up their cart or their bag, and then they literally walk out of the store without having to go through the checkout system. It's all done. It's based on the app on their phone. Oh, and it's it's very very clever. And um, and I think to go back to the Amazon conversation, I think that you know Amazon certainly has changed the the retail world, and um, but I think it's it's probably woken up a lot of retailers as well, a lot of brands. And it's it's made them to really act faster than they probably would have to a changing environment, and I think we've seen that over the last couple of years with several of the grocery retailers and some of the big boxes have really upped their ante, and they've they're they're now competing with Amazon, and there was a recently an article about Rodney Mullen from CEO of Kroger that two three years back they actually acquired a company out of the Carolinas because they they foresaw this event happening and so it wasn't unexpected that that they would change things I think people saw it happen faster than than they thought it was going to happen but retailers have reacted and um, I think when when so every, so think about this think about the economy and retail overall and retail sales and how much retail is actually a giant percentage of the economy right um, and then you turn around and look at overall retail sales and say, okay, how much of it's online? So tw- let's say 12% to 15% is currently online of what you can purchase. Of that, you know, overall number 3% is Amazon, right? Of that 3%, one third of Amazon is stuff they sell that's theirs. This other piece of it is, is the second party. And then there's a third party where they just provide their platform for people to sell through them. So Amazon's goods as a as a merchant is really only one percent of the entire economy. They their business went up ten percent. So Amazon's business changed the dynamic by 01 percent, <laughs> and the apocalypse is still happening. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the it's the it's the accelerated growth that people are anticipating. Well, if I project that out, it's going to mean in fifty years as it doubles and doubles and doubles every ten. You know, we're going to be in a, a mess of hurt twenty years from now. It will level off. I think consumers will continue to change and adapt. And the consumers now that are that think it's cool, like the Xers, to say, I, I, you know, I woke up in the digital age and I shop online. I'm cool. I got rid of bricks and mortars. The millennials are turning around. Well, you know, I'm kind of a, a, a little bit more of a digital native, right? I want, you know, be able to touch these things. I'm pretty brand loyal now. I'm not like the Xers. So they're you know, kind of mid level, but that's everybody's chasing the millennial. Now you've got the generation behind this. They're, they were born with an iPad in their hand. Right. So they don't think necessarily digital is cooler than retail. They just want the experience of what it is to be a part of that brand, the brands that help them identify who they are. So they're, they're actually, in my opinion, going to save retail in the next generation because they want that retail experience. They want to meet the people who sell the sneakers at finish line and be able to learn about all the different brands and the things that they're involved in. So I think, I think, really when you look down at the consumer end of it, it's just another cycle that we're in. It's just gonna take some retailers a little while to catch up. And if you had a bad business model to begin with and you were part of the over-retailed group, yes, it will call out some of it. But those who survive will be stronger for it, more multi-channeled in the way that they sell to consumers. And so long as they keep testing and adapting, they will become better than the pure online retailer. We're going to pause now on Andrew's powerful observation about the need to adapt and evolve in the retail world. 
Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP for part one of our discussion surrounding trends and tensions in retail design. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We hope you'll join us for part two as we continue this constructive conversation on the next episode of Trends and Tensions.